Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week has spent a fair part of this year at the eye of a storm. Tori Peters' novel Detransition Baby, a gloriously gossipy comedy of manners, was rapturously received when it was published in January. Chosen for book clubs by everyone from Oprah to Roxane Gay, and TV rights were optioned by the team behind Grey's Anatomy. It was lauded as the first great trans-realist novel in one review, and has been called the true heir to Sex and the City. Then, Tori became the first trans woman to be longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And surprise, surprise, the haters came for her. Which I think is what prizes are supposed to be. It's like you did all the work to do your book and now you get to set down your shield and and accept laurels. It was the opposite. I had to hold my shield even tighter. Tori tells me about the bonkers year that changed her life, writing a surprise bestseller, becoming an unwitting poster girl for trans issues, and how fiction became fact for her in the most unexpected way. She's a total breath of fresh air on the pressure to pass and why society can shove its eyeliner requirements. Want to know why trans women and divorced cis women are natural allies? Listen on. So you've had a crazy year, haven't you? Aside from lockdown, you've had a crazy year. Yeah. So the, well, the book came out in January 4th and it came out to press. It was a very sort of warm reception, but not too huge a reception. You know, it was in New York magazine and there was sort of trans people who were reading it and they were excited by it. But it wasn't like a lot of books that come out the gate really big and then, you know, have sort of a tail. It, it was more like this slow build where there was more and more attention and the attention that came was from more and more disparate people where it was like you know suddenly there was there were tv people who were interested or there was the women's prize in the uk when it was longlisted for that prize and you know that's just like a totally different audience than i've ever dealt with including you know people who were quite upset that it was on the women's long list Mm -hmm. so that was like a new thing to deal with because the book to me was just kind of intimate and private and i had always like imagined sharing with my friends so 
that it was embroiled in a political controversy, you know, across the ocean wasn't really something that I had prepared for, let's say, you know, and to some degree, if you're going to be embroiled in a political controversy, it's fine that there's an ocean between you and it. But, um, you know, it was it was pretty wild to have that happen. And then at the same time that that was happening, the TV stuff was building and people were like, do you want to write a pilot? Do you want to pitch that pilot and potentially executive produce it? And I, I was like, sure. Yeah, let's do what a TV show is like. But it was nothing that I had expected in December. The TV stuff had already started a little bit, but it just took off to such a degree this year. So it was pretty wild. And then on top of that, I'm getting married. So that was also just like another thing that uh, I was thinking about how to plan for. It's my second marriage. So it's a little bit, it's a little more low key. <laughs> like you're, you're not as like, invite everybody. You're kind of like, yeah, we'll sign the papers and you know, we love each other, but we don't necessarily need to like proclaim it in front of yeah. everyone we've ever met, you know? I actually got married in New York City Hall. Oh, yeah. It's not crazy glamorous, but you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> You've just done the whole whistle-stop tour of that year, which has been crazy. For the listeners, tell them a bit about Detransition Baby and where the idea came from. Sure. So I started this book when I was in my early 30s. Um, I started my transition in the late 20s, and I had a sort of slow transition, but you know, really by 30, I was in it. And by kind of 33, I was like, oh, I'm on the far side of transition. You know, the world treats me as a woman. I live as a woman. And the whole sort of intrigue around gender and what does gender mean and what does it mean for me and all that sort of stuff. The drama had subsided. You know, it's just like, this is just daily life. It's like, I just get up, I go do my thing. And and then I was like, kind of like, how do I live? The generation of trans women that I'm part of, there's not a lot of precedence for the kind of opportunity that we had. The women of the previous generation, it was more a day-to-day thing. It was a kind of survival mode. And my generation, there's a kind of further horizon where you're like, I can actually plan for life. So I went to those older trans women, I was like, well, how do you live? And they're like, we don't know. You know, this this is a different moment. And then I asked a lot of cis women, how do you live in their 30s? And they're like, we don't know. We're figuring it out, you know. <laughs> and uh, things are a little bit different for our generation, just economically, in terms of sort of social mores, like all of these things are just slightly off. So I, in the book, I talk about this thing called the, the sex in the city problem, which is a little bit glib, but it's, you know, the idea that when I looked at the cis women around me, the ways that they were trying to find meaning in their 30s, like after sort of like the partying and bad roommates and bad jobs that your 20s are over, was the four kind of life paths embodied by the four Sex in the City characters, you know, be an artist, be a mom, get a husband, have a career, you know, with the four different characters. And for me, I was like, well, I want to solve all those things. But the thing that's hardest for a trans woman is motherhood. It's extremely difficult. Obviously, it's biologically impossible. You know, I can't get pregnant, obviously. But even just to adopt or to have a baby with a partner, you have to solve the partner problem. So I was like, if I write a book about a trans woman who who wants to have a child, it actually has to address all of those other four options, which although they're starting to be available for trans women, they're still very much aspirational. You know, like I aspire to 
to like face those problems without a lot of roadblocks to them. And I aspire to solve that problem that I think the Sex in the City problem lays out. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go straight for the motherhood thing. And then I began thinking about it in just a kind of classic protagonist, antagonist. You know, there's one baby and there's three different people who have different opinions about what that baby means to them and they have to work it out. And that's the way a lot of fiction works where there's one thing and different people trying to access that idea or that concept um, from different positions. And usually if one wins, the other one doesn't get it. And so there has to be a kind of compromise and the kind of compromise around motherhood and womanhood was the thing that the book was trying to take on. Did you reach any conclusions for yourself writing the book? There's this quote that I heard recently by um, Alexander Chi, which is like, be careful what you write in fiction because it might come true or it has a tendency to come true. And that is exactly what happened to me. I spent three years working out the plot of this book where it's three different women of different types trying to come up with an unconventional family to have them all figure out what they want. And in the book, you know, I purposely don't prescribe an answer to it because I actually think this is a generational problem. And it's like, I don't want to be like, hey, guess what? Tori Peters, I have solved the problem (laughs) of facing all, all women of this generation. I think it's more like the book was trying to articulate the question for other people to do it and then not prescribe it. But in my own personal case, the book describes this sort of wild family arrangement. And as soon as I finished it, like I sold it, I think in January and I'd been dating men, women, you know, like I'd just been dating across the board. I think in February, I met the woman I'm going to marry, Chris. When I met her, she was living still with an ex-husband raising a child. And then like I came in started helping out raising this uh, child and and things have worked out now where she and I are living together. But she lives half the week with me and half the week with her sister. And then the husband is also like down the block and we're all sort of like together raising now an 11 year old in this pretty unconventional, you know, not nuclear family. And uh, it's funny because the book sort of predicted that. And in a certain way, the book convinced me that this sort of thing isn't workable, like on a personal level. And then lo and behold, like life just handed me something that was not exactly the same, but as different from a nuclear family as, as the situation in the book. And how did it feel to suddenly get a stepson? So much of writing the book was working through my desire to be to be a mother, you know, like working through, do I want this because it's a marker of womanhood that's so hard to contest? Like if you're a mother, it's like just this really respected sort of marker of womanhood. And did I want it for that? Did I want it because I have a nurturing kind of spirit and I wanted to take care of somebody? Did I want it because it seemed like a sort of stability and purpose? And by the end of the book, I had sort of worked through it. And I was like, you know, I don't actually know if I want to be a mother. Like having done this whole thing, I'm not sure that that's actually for me. I kind of gave so many of those desires to my characters. And, you know, life was just like, well, now that it's no longer an urgent situation for you, you have to deal with it in reality. It was obviously like an adjustment. And, you know, we didn't like announce immediately, like, this is your stepmom you know, all of a sudden it was, it was a slow process, but it was a lot of things like me learning to build my own relationship with him. And I'm still doing it, you know, like us kind of working on little projects together being like, here's how you split wood. I mean, I I remember I bought him like a a little hatchet to split wood with me. (laughs) That was brave. (laughs) And uh, his mom was like, what are you doing? Like, I saw saw him out there like with no shoes swinging a hatchet. And I was like, yep, I almost cost a couple
couple toes with that move. And so I was like, okay, figuring this out, you know. <laughs> it's um, really interesting to me because I got my stepson at six. And, you know, you kind of have to work out between you what the relationship is going to be and how it's going to work. And it's not necessarily a mother-son relationship at all. I mean, it can be. Yeah. yeah. For me, it, it's not really. We're more kind of buddies, you know. I think that that is actually the case. He was nine when I met him. And I think that by the time that I'm actually in a place to like be where I'm close enough to him, he's 11 now, to be an authority figure. You know, I I wasn't an authority figure for all of his childhood. And I don't know if it's like a great idea to come into a teenager's life and be like, no, I'm an authority figure to you, just as they're like, we don't like authority, you know? (laughs) So... I'm never sure what to call our relationship. Yeah, buddy is like one. I feel like my relationship looks to me a lot like his relationship with his aunt. It's more like an aunt relationship than a a straight mother relationship. And that feels good. You know, it feels good where I can like show him some stuff. He can confide in me. But he also isn't necessarily attaching or separating from me in the way that Mm -hmm. one would with a mother. Yeah, let someone else go through that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I'm mostly supporting my partner as she sees him entering his teenage years. (laughs) It was really interesting to me reading the book. The way that you're kind of just taking apart all the narratives that are handed down to women and kind of questioning them. And I think you made a point earlier that actually a lot of women of your age, regardless whether or not they're cis or trans, are going through that. And actually a lot of women of my age are going through that, but 15 years on. Yeah. It's you reach a point, whether it's divorce or that kind of so-called biological clock or menopause where like, hang on, I'm told I have to do all these things and this is the way it should be. But why? No, I, I totally agree with you. And I mean, I think that's why the book has resonated in certain ways is that you're supposed to say that transition is like anything else. There's a sort of like stay in your lane mentality to a lot of like identity type stuff. But I'm pretty interested in, in the ways that my gender transition creates bridges to other women in different stages in their life. You know, the book is explicitly dedicated to divorced women because I felt like I had this real kinship with divorced women. I loved literature by divorced women. And finally, I figured out like, oh, it's because, you know, they've lived their life a certain way with these certain narratives. And then there's a break and they have to like move on without getting bitter or reinvesting in those illusions. So that was like the explicit one that was in the book was divorce. But I think too about my own relationship with my mom around gender and my transition is definitely it's not an easy one. If, you know, we go periods where we will be close and then periods where we won't talk. I think for me, my transition caused her a real feeling of grief and loss. Ultimately, I've come to a place where I have to respect that if she feels lost, I can't argue with her about that. But the point that I was making is that early on in my late 20s when I was figuring this out was also when she was retiring. And she suddenly had all this time in her life and she was like someone who was driven for most of her life and suddenly she had this time and she's like what is my actual purpose what do I actually care about and I could see her she was like late 50s then trying to figure out what is my transition into my next period of my life I could have a whole second life what is it going to be and meanwhile I'm my late 20s being like you know I have a Mm -hmm. second life here I totally have to reinvent myself and I sort of wish now that I could have seen that parallel between 
between us. I think at the time, each of us was alarmed by how lost the other was. But now I'm sort of like, maybe we could have built something together. I think it's like you said earlier about the stay in your lane mentality. I mean, I would have been too anxious to use the word transition, you mm-hmm. know, in relation to a cis thing like divorce or, or menopause. But actually, I read a quote about you talking about in your 20s when you figured out what needed to change. And I've spoken to so many women in their kind of late 40s, early 50s who've been looking at their lives and going, it all feels wrong. You know, what is it that's wrong? And a lot of them, they realize it's their relationships, but it's they're going through that process and it does seem to be tied to hormones and, and menopause and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I speak from experience that hormones are a real thing. They really do. I remember just thinking like, oh, it's just this like little, you know, now it was shots early on. It was just this little pill. And I was like, I don't understand how this little physical thing can change my perspective on so much in life and change how I react to everything, change how I... I just see the world. And obviously, there's a whole a whole lot of different ideas that trans women have about that. What estrogen does is it release something that's already innate or does it create stuff? But in any case, it was extremely powerful, like the, the experience. Yeah, one forgets that like actually cis women go through that go through that period twice, you know, there's sort of a puberty and then a menopause, which are just massive amounts of hormonal shifts. Like if it's anything like the hormonal effects that I went through, it would totally change your perspective on life. I kind of don't want to say it's in any way the same, because of course it isn't. But at the same time, you feel like as an aging cis woman, you feel like you're not allowed to age. And I was was listening to you this morning on another podcast talking about shame and the way that being ashamed of things being age shamed or trans shamed Mm -hmm. whatever stops you talking about it and it stops you accepting it and learning to adapt into your life and I think there's a real sense of that that women are not encouraged to age it's like don't do that and if you are Mm -hmm. doing that make sure nobody knows I'm gonna turn 40 this summer and uh you know what 40 is I guess it means a lot of things to different people but I have a friend, she's cis, and she's going through a lot of hard times about being 40 and what it means for her and what it means in terms of her attractiveness. She's single and like, especially like dating sites like Tinder. I mean, it's just awful to put 40 and they just will choose an age range that just like, you don't even get to be seen. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she's very aware of that. Personally, I think for trans women, there's a, for cis women too, there's such a pressure to be sort of young and feminine. Like I'll just speak for the trans experience that if you're trans and you're like attractive and young and feminine and like sort of that that might be okay. You know, definitely if you pass and if you're attractive, there's a second side of that, which is then trans women are oftentimes attacked for being a stereotype of femininity, but it's like that same pressure that's on cis women to be attractive, to be, you know, yeah, a certain type of femininity. And for me, I've actually found moving towards 40 to be a bit of a relief that I don't, for instance, wear as much makeup as I used to. I will wear just like a hoodie when I go out. And instead of being like, oh, I'm failing at womanhood, I'm sort of like, listen, I'm getting towards middle age. Like, I'm not going to bother with your with your eyeliner requirements, you know, like, I mean, and that's like a sort of superficial version of it. But I, I find also in meetings with people, there's a new kind of respect that I can um, garner for myself being like, look, I'm, I've actually been through 
through, I've seen some things. I've lived, you know, a couple of different lives and I have enough experience and I'd like you to respect that experience. And it, this stuff is all implicit, I think, in the ways that people, when I talk to each other, but so it's been a real kind of trade-off, I think, in that I'm trying to sort of emphasize what the aging process offers me rather than what it's taking away from me. I was in my early 30s before I was like, I'm like in womanhood now. I think it, like if you talk to me at like age 32, you would have heard me have this long regret, you know, I transitioned just at the time of an age where I don't get to experience the sort of affirmations that like young women get. And now that I'm a little bit older, I sometimes see the way that young women are treated. I'm just like, well, thank God I missed that, you know? <laughs> like, mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of constant objectification and yeah. being public property. And and I think for, you know, for my friend that I was talking about, it's I think it's really hard for her because that was a lot of her affirmation. On one hand, it's kind of awful. On the other hand, and that was a way that she had learned to affirm herself. And it's hard for her now to like find the same sort of affirmation in, let's say, the respect that she's maybe offered as a woman who's 40 rather than in her early 20s. And also the kind of invisibility that comes with that sometimes, you know, that she was, she was used to being seen all the time. Yeah, seen in a, a certain way, in a male yeah. gaze yeah. kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I do love that we're both sat here dressed like 12-year-old boys. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, should I get dressed up for this? Like, no, I'm going to wear a hoodie. It's like, it's... <laughs> no, totally. Do you feel like, in terms of kind of the aging, and you're not even 40, so really, you know, shut up about it. You're not. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like in the book, Reese is talking about being 34 and feeling old. And I'm just like, oh my God, try 54, love. But do you feel like there's a map? Is there any sort of roadmap for the aging process as a trans woman? I think we're inventing it. I mean, I will say that I am a little bit self-aware of that, the 34 and feeling old. I remember I was 34 when I read a line in a Lori Moore story where she was like 38. And she was like, I'd give anything to be 34 again. Like I'd trade a finger. <laughs> be 34 and I was like you're only 38 like what's like it's just four years like but it's so funny the way that when you're in that moment it feels like oh I've seen so much and I'm sure that you know in 10 years I'll be like remember when Tori was on that podcast asking like like she knew a thing you know <laughs> to answer your question um I think we're inventing it I mean I think that's why this this generation and that's why I wrote this book is that I think trans women now have opportunities that we didn't have and so what it means to age is something new. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Like the the older trans women, number one, there aren't that many of them because we lost so many older trans women to HIV, to suicide, to substance abuse, to just going stealth, which means, you know, if you could pass as a woman, just never telling anybody that you're trans and living your life, you know, completely undetectable, essentially. And there's even stories now, of, I know a couple of trans women who live their entire life stealth. And now that, you know, so there's more trans visibility, they're sort of coming out again at age like 65, 70. Wow. And they're looking to young people to be like, how do I be trans? I don't know how to be trans. I've been living as a cis woman for 35 years. I don't actually know what it means to talk about being trans and aging. So they're almost like teenagers, even though they may be 70, in that they're they're figuring it out again. And they're looking to like a 30-year-old to be like, what does it mean? You know? So we're all scrambled now. And I think there are some older trans women who survived by being very visible. Like there's a lot of like sort of leaders who are older, but I'm not sure what it means to just be sort of an average trans woman who's aging. And I think that that's something that we're going to have to invent. And it's why I don't want to sort of have a sort of a stay in your lane mentality, because personally, I'm going to need help, you know, and, and people who figured it out, who are the closest to me are cis women. So I'm sort of like, yeah, if my experience has shed some light for you, um, and there's like, is a backstop and in, in sort of either metaphorically or in sort of figuring it out, I'm interested in that conversation, because ultimately, I'm going to need the kind of wisdom that a lot of cis women have. I think about when I bought the place in Vermont, I thought about the mothers of one of my friends that I had growing up. And when she turned 50, I think, she divorced her husband. She had an interior design business in, in Chicago where I grew up. And she moved to, to really rural Montana, like the deep like mountains, bought a horse and kind of like reinvented herself. And she was so vibrant and full of life when I saw her again, like, you know, 55, riding this horse in the mountains. And she was a suburban mom, you know, in a certain way. And uh, she lived in a log cabin. And it was like, there's so much that I want to ask her. Like, how did you find that vibrancy? How did you reinvent yourself? I don't know how you didn't feel tired. You know, like you bring yeah. these kids, you did all this stuff. Like, where did you get that energy to reinvent yourself at, at 50? And that's the kind of person that, that I'm going to look to, you know, as I'm in my 40s, as I'm in my 50s, like, how'd you do this? I'd love to talk to her too. But it, it, it is a thing that, I mean, I haven't had children, so I can't comment. But for the women that I've spoken to, they've got to the point where their kids are not dependent on them anymore. And I think that they get that energy from, whoa, this is just about me now. You know, for the first time in, what, 20 years or 30 years, I can put myself like front and center. You know, like one woman said to me, her husband was lovely, you know, he was a great guy and everything, but his idea of a good time was, golf with his mates pint at the pub on the way home and a kung po chicken from the takeaway yeah. 
It's like, that's, you know, just not what I want to do with the next 30 years of my life. And yeah, it's not what I would want to do either. But it takes a lot to sort of also say that, like, I'm not responsible to that. I mean, that's a a lot of what the book is about is a little bit about Mm -hmm. the both security of heterosexuality and the confines of traditional heterosexuality. And that the ways that they're sort of sneaking expectations that you sort of failed in a kind of womanhood if you don't just eat Kung Pao chicken for 30 years, you know, like it's like, well, who are you to leave this decent man? And he just wants a pint and Kung Pao chicken and you couldn't even provide that for him. You know, that sort of expectation to recognize that as basically being like, no, like these expectations that are built into these institutions actually aren't serving me. You know, for me, for instance, speaking about, again about my own experience, part of the transition that was strange for me was realizing that suddenly these institutions were accessible to me. Like I was dating men, you know, in my 30s. And I, I did have relationships with men. And suddenly there were the expectations to have Kung Pao chicken every night, you know, and realizing like, oh, actually, I'm chafing against this. Like, I thought I wanted mm-hmm. this so badly. Like, and on a certain hand, there was such security and like, you know, being with a man and having the guy I was with, he made more money than me and he could take care of me in a certain way. And especially as a trans woman, I was like, I don't know if I can make it on my own. And here's this like nice man who will take care of me. And at the same time, I'm chafing. Like, I don't actually want to be my number one priority to be this other person. I like caring for him, but I want to be out of love rather than like a sort of gendered obligatory mm-hmm. requirement. Yeah, there was a study um, about housework, an American study, and it basically found that the people who were most dissatisfied in relationships were heterosexual cis women because of that like physical and emotional housework is baked in to that narrative. I mean, you see it the way it's accelerated so much during the Mm -hmm. pandemic. You know, you you have all of these women who are like, they're just bearing so much of the brunt of upkeep of the house, of schooling the children, of doing all the stuff. You know, the second that there's any pressure, I think especially American society, the, the person who's expected to step up and bear that pressure is the woman in a relationship. I mean, again, I see it with my friends where it's like, okay, everybody's having a hard time, but who who has to watch the children to make sure that they're on their laptops all day and do all the housework that they're already doing and have their job and like be like, you know, sexy and fun as a partner. It's like, it's not sustainable. And lots of times it's unexamined, you know, the little things that are are pushing to make things that way are unexamined. As you talked about in the book, one of the things I was trying to do in the book was to examine like, what are those things? What's pleasing about it? How did we get it? Because I got those things in a different stage in my life than I think a lot of women did. And so what I could see when they came to me was a slightly different perspective. And I was interested in sharing that, you know, and having it definitely be a conversation because there's so much still that I'm working through and trying to figure out and and all of these parallels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you crack it. Let me know. We'll do another episode. There was a a phrase in the book, actually, that I absolutely loved, on we of heterosexuality. And I can just Mm -hmm. imagine loads of women in their 40s and 50s just like nodding (laughs) along to that. It's like just so familiar. I just want to ask you a little bit more about the Women's Prize experience. Was that a joy for you at first? Did it feel like recognition or did it make you anxious about what might be coming? I mean, when I got it, 
sorry to everybody it was locked down during the time I was in Florida. So <laughs> when I heard with my stepson, his grandparents live in Florida, so I'd gone with him to Florida. So, you know, it was sunny and, and beautiful and they were like, And now you you win a literary prize and I was just like, Oh wow, this is so great. I feel amazing. I mean I'd known what the women's prize was, of course, and that it was, you know, previously mm-hmm. the orange prize, but I, I was thinking to myself, I was like, What is the history of this prize? And then I remembered, oh, this is a prize that was created because the bookers were being given only to men, right? Mm -hmm. And so I know that there are a lot of people that don't considered me a woman and they would see this as a sort of um, insidious creeping under like a certain guise into the territory that that they've marked for themselves the people who really get upset about this are are not people who actually follow women's literary prizes it's like i knew that it would attract people who don't who've never heard of the prize before but i sort of like well this is my ancestral right and it's being you know violated and so we're gonna rise up even though we've never read any of these books and never knew about this prize until this moment and so I, I sort of was like, oh, this seems like ripe for that reaction, which I've seen, you know, for all sorts of other things. Like, I don't want to get into like sort of trans women and girl sports, but I will say that a lot of the people who are upset about trans women and girl sports, there are people who have thought about it for a long time, but the people who are upset are not people who actually watch girls sports. It's like the people who are upset, it's like, have you ever been to a WNBA game? So you see women's sports and there's no equipment. They're given like no support. They're not paid fair. And suddenly now the people who never wanted to give them any money are like, we have to protect the sanctity of women's sports. That's sort of how I felt about the women's prize. It was like the people who are upset are not people who were ever invested in this in the first place. And so lo and behold, those people were upset in the way that I predicted. And I never experienced, I'd experienced transphobia, of course, and I'd experienced transphobia in the media in a general way where it's like people are like, we don't like trans women, but I'd never seen it directed towards me. And it was bracing. I decided that I just wasn't going to respond to any of it. And, you know, eventually after like a week, I was like, I'm just going to turn off my social media so that they can just yell into the void if they want. Um, But it, you know, it took a second for me to sort of recalibrate and realize that people are going to say this stuff. They're going to say horrible things about me and I can't control it. I can't let it into my thoughts. Like I can't let it penetrate. So as a result, having to armor up that way, that's not the same as like an unadulterated joy of love. <laughs> to, you know, to be like, I'm going to put on all of my armor now. That's going to battle. That's not celebrating yourself. So I, I will say that like emotionally, it was an experience in which I had to armor rather than let go or like let down the mm-hmm. armor in order to be at the end of a battle or something, yeah. which I think is what prizes are supposed to be. It's like you did all the work to do your book and now you get to set down your shield and, and accept laurels. It was the opposite. I had to hold my shield even tighter. But I also think that that is the nature of anybody who's one of the first to get a prize. In response to that, there were a whole bunch of people who ca- who came out in support and got you into the Times bestseller list, which was, uh, you know. Absolutely. Was- Certainly, I think that there was a vocal contingent of people that are well organized and, and quite loud, but the actual number of people who are invested in that way of seeing the world is not that big. And that when you have something like this, you know, if you're looking online, you can see the loud ones. But over time, the majority of people came out, they supported it. There was like such an outpouring of love, such an outpouring of care. And I'm so grateful to everybody who bought the book who had that fight on my behalf so I didn't necessarily have to engage and I could stay centered. And um, it was lovely. 
Let me just say this. I'm really grateful to the judges on the Women's Prize, especially Elizabeth Day, who also was really harassed for championing the book. She stood up to it. She countenanced it. And I'm really grateful. It was kind of an insane thing to watch because, you know, you just think, really? Yeah, it was disgusting. Disgusting. Why do you think it's such a zero-sum game? I think it it has to do with the battlefield and which is conducted. You know, I think that when you have these fights in tweets, you know, tweets are not historically known for nuance. And I think that people are really, they feel very embattled and they feel hurt. It's hard because if you grant somebody the fact that they are hurt, like I think that there are a lot of women who are afraid of trans women who have been hurt by men. They have an instinctive reaction to the idea that they might be exposed to hurt again. They're wrong to see men where there are not men, trans women. But I don't think it's logical. I think that when people have been hurt or traumatized, you know, you talk about people being triggered. I've seen people be triggered and it's not a logical response. It's an emotional response. It's a fear response. And there's not a lot of nuance in the response in which one's triggered and which one's really scared for themselves. And so when you talk about those things, when you talk about, especially when other people foment the kind of fear that's like, you're going to be attacked in a bathroom or whatever it is that, you know, horrible things that they say that trans women will do. If you have experienced something like that from men, that's not a moment in which you say, well, let's talk about this rationally. Let's like debate and see the merits of this thing. You feel attacked, you feel fear, you feel scared, and you lash out. Likewise, trans women are treated pretty badly a lot of times. You know, we are attacked. We're shunned oftentimes. We have a lot of trauma. Most trans women carry a lot of trauma. And so you have two people who are traumatized talking to each other, and that trauma comes out. There's not a lot of place, you know, if it's like you're trying to make it so I can't live. That's what a trans woman feels. You know, you're making it so I can't live. It's hard to basically be like, let me hear about your hurt. Let me hear about your pain. Likewise, if people are, you know, I'm scared. I've had trauma myself and I don't know that you're not someone who will deliver that trauma. Of course, I think that viewpoint is wrong, but I try to I try to have some empathy for it and understand that that's why these conversations can't happen. It's why I'm a fiction writer. You know, obviously people were really mad at what I said, even in fiction, and they couldn't read that book as fiction. They're the things that characters said, and they would quit me mm-hmm. as having said that. I want to be like, look, Shakespeare wouldn't trade his kingdom for a horse. It's like Richard III who trades his kingdom for a horse. Like, that's it's a character. But, you know, I'm a fiction writer because I think it's a place that you can have some of these discussions in a slightly less charged way, you can be provocative. And ultimately, if someone like Reese is is very triggering, the solace for Reese is that she is fictional. She like literally can't hurt you. She does not exist. She's a figment of my imagination. So you can actually listen to her and she will never appear in the places that you're scared of her appearing. And I think that there's a lot of kind of understanding and bridges that can be built in fiction. It's why in fiction, I'm willing to sort of not stay in my lane in certain ways, because it's the place for that. It's a thing that female writers come up against a lot. The idea that people think if a woman's written a book, it's got to be autobiographical. It can't be a work of imagination. Yeah, I think that's true. I remember Cat Person, the New Yorker story, and it was the most popular story ever on the New Yorker. And you realize when you start looking at it that everybody thought it was memoir. Mm -hmm. It's like a woman's sex life. It must be just her diary. And all the work that that story was doing is it required fiction for it to work. Otherwise, it wasn't the irony that animated that story. But I, I don't know. I'm trying to believe that people are still reading fiction. They're still learning how to read it and how to interpret it. And the very fact that my book did what it did 
I think, gives me hope that fiction can do this work, that a think piece maybe can't. Yeah, totally. And, you know, Detransition Baby is funny. It's really funny. Possibly my favourite line. I've written it down and I'm not going to be able to find it now. Oh, yeah, here it is. Fisher Price, my first abusive man. I mean, I don't (laughs) think that there's a single woman, cis or trans, who won't have like had a horrible wince of like recognition when they read that. Yeah, I hope I can still do that in the next book. When I wrote that, I was like, I think like, 14 people will ever read this book. I didn't know that I would do. So I was able to just like throw in whatever joke that I thought was funny. And the real thing that I'm afraid of is now that this book has been read by so many people is that I'll censor myself. I make so much fun of different trans women too. You know, the thing about all they ever really want is to stand in good lighting and stuff like that. You know, like those are jokes that that I think make the book what it is and were easy to make when I pictured like three of my friends laughing at them. I think I'm just going to have to go back to imagining that, that I'm a failure as a writer and nobody will read it and then I'll be able to be funny again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you now a bunch of questions that I always ask at the end. Mm-hmm. What's your emotional age? I'm going to say that my emotional age is actually right now dead on. I didn't arrive at that age in a linear way. I was like 30 when I was 25. Then I was like 14 when I was 31. Then I was like 50 when I was 37. And now I'm dead on at 39. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, Give us a book recommendation. I will recommend Time is the Thing that a Body Moves Through by... T. Fleischman. It's like a meditation on art, ice, like frozen water, and beauty and friendships. It's a gorgeous book. Brilliant. What one piece of advice would you give younger women? I would say read Elena Ferrante. I know that the book recommendation was the last question, but I wish I had read Elena Ferrante when I was younger. Almost every problem that I've ever had is in that Neapolitan series. And, uh, at least it's one solution to those problems. That's brilliant because that's loads of advice in one yeah, answer. It, basically, the answer to that question is like, ask Elena Ferrante. <laughs> <laughs> What's your superpower? I think my superpower is when I'm able to invoke it, it's um, focus. That at certain points in my life, I'm able to really focus and I can't sustain it indefinitely. But most of my productivity has come in these like waves of intense focus. And it's something when I'm in the right place, I can cultivate it. God, if you could bottle that, I'd buy it. (laughs) So buy that. Who is your old bird role model? I want to say that 55-year-old horse riding lady in in Montana. She's my inspiration. (laughs) She sounds amazing. She is amazing. She's just incredible. Just a bon vivant. Was she a little bit of um, inspiration for Katrina's mum? She was, actually. You're right. She she is the person who, when the bear... when the bear broke into her cabin and walked all over the couch, she didn't sell it, but she just was like, so the bear broke into her cabin, broke a bottle of, of red wine, walked in the red wine and then left white, left a uh, red, red wine bear prints all over her white couch. And rather than being like, um, my couch is ruined. She was like, I have the most exclusive couch in all of it's designed by a bear like the most exclusive couch in all of montana and like her whole way of being was that way and 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 so i did i took that anecdote from from her and put it in the book that's a good eye yeah Yeah, that was a you spotted that it was just that spirit when you were describing her i was thinking she really sounds like her um and lastly how many fucks do you give um 
I actually think I give quite a lot. I have a sort of laconic affect that I use to sometimes hide how many fucks I give. But I actually think that the way that you create good art, the way that you love people, the way that you invest and have desire is by giving a lot of fucks. And the times when I'm saddest is when I legitimately don't give any fucks. And the times that I'm happiest is when I deeply, deeply care about all the things that I'm doing, all the people in my life, and that everything feels urgent and crucial. And that's that's the place I like to reside. That's fantastic. Thank you, Tori. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for having us. This is lovely. I I, um, can't wait to go back and hear so many other women talking to you in similar ways. Oh, I could quite happily sit here for another hour. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.